Sometimes it can feel like food has an emotional control over you. Well, it's time to show your food who's boss with Noom. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Before we get started with this episode of Benched with Bubba, I want to tell you I am stoked to be collaborating with Rotoballer this 2020 season with the Benched with Bubba podcast joining the Rotoballer radio network. Since 2013, Rotoballer has been grinding away, providing millions of fantasy baseball players their fix for in-depth MLB analysis and player news. If you haven't heard, Rotoballer 2020 MLB Draft Kit is live, and all Benched with Bubba listeners can get 10% off Rotoballer's Draft Kit by using the discount code Bubba. Rotoballer is home to the number one fantasy pros accuracy ranker Nick Mariano. Nick's 2020 rankings and projections are available as part of Rotoballer's draft kit, along with printable cheat sheets, draft sleepers, and busts. More than 300 2020 player outlooks and tons of in-season tools. All this fantasy baseball goodness from Rotoballer is available for 10% off with a discount code Bubba. Just go to rotoballer.com backslash Bubba and get your draft kit today. They have tons of great stuff, and you get premium with promo code Bubba, DFS, all the goodies. Use promo code Bubba, sign up at Rollerballer, get an extra 10% off with promo code Bubba. Now to tonight's episode of Bench with Bubba. everybody to another episode of Bubba and the Bat Flip episode 41. We're going to talk about short season baseball as it appears. We have a 60 game schedule on tap for us. You can find me on Twitter at BDentric and my co-host is always the Bat Flip of the podcast at Bat Flip Crazy. Toby, how are we doing my friend? Uh, we're doing we're doing pretty well Bubba. It looks like we're going to have some baseball uh, potentially as long as we can uh... You know, get around get around the whole pandemic thing, um, but it looks like we're going to have a sixty game season. So, yeah, I think I actually like to think that we played a part in making sure there was baseball. <laughs> Missing last week, I know all of the baseball fans and baseball players, and uh, hope I don't think the owners listen to us, but uh, who listen to the podcast were just so distraught after missing the podcast <laughs> last week that in order to make sure there was a podcast every week moving forward, they. They decided to have a season, so yeah. Yep, they they must have been paying attention because yeah, Toby he texted me about an hour, an hour and a half beforehand when the news dropped that there might not be a season, and I was in no condition to talk. It would have been a uh, yeah. a lot of four letter words and just anger. It would have been a bad podcast. So I'm um I'm a lot better spirits now, obviously, but uh, we'll see we'll see what takes place. Like Toby and I were talking about before the show, we're going to stick to. The positives of it all, there's still a lot of questions involved and a lot of things that could possibly go wrong, obviously. But uh, we're here to give fantasy advice, talk a little baseball, have a little fun, as always. And uh, the mo- for the most part, tonight's show will be 
listener questions from last week and this week, and a lot of it centers around short season strategy. And then in the end, uh, there might be a couple other things we hit on if we don't talk about them throughout the show. But Toby, let's kick it off with our buddy Matt Davis at Matty Wood underscore Matty Wood underscore. He asked, because he's in the barf league with us, he asked, if Justin Mason finishes ahead of him in barf, which Rotowire design of his face do you guys recommend him get tattooed? Because Matt, of course, first year in barf, for those that don't know, said that he guarantees he'll beat Justin Mason in this league. And if he doesn't, he'll get a Rotowire Justin Mason t-shirt tattooed on his body. So, <laughs> Toby, Toby, which one would you recommend? Because there's a lot to choose from. Oh, man. There are so many to choose from. And um, I don't know. I'm gonna let you go first because I gotta review. I gotta do a little reviewing because I know there was some that were shared. So we have a little bit. Uh, we have some to choose from. But I'm gonna let you go ahead and, and make the make the first call on this one. Off the top of my head, without going through the log, I think just the the best one for losing to Mason would be the shut up Mason one, where his mouth is like zipped shut. That his wife always wears that shirt. <laughs> I think that'd be the perfect one. Like if you lose to him, basically just tell him to shut up because you don't want to hear about it. I think, I think the shut up Mason one would be one of my favorites to have Matt tattooed. I don't even know what, the fun part is. I don't know where Matt's getting it tattooed at. That's what could also that's be true. What it is? That's true. That's so true. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go with the shut up Mason one for now. Oh man, um, it's really difficult. I think that's a really good one to go with. Um, the slippery with wet wet one is good too. I. I think they should actually create an entirely new T-shirt, an entirely new Justin Mason T-shirt with the gif of Justin's face over that guy in the crowd that's in the chain, you know, mm-hmm. By, yeah. with an actual gif on the T-shirt. Find a way at RotoWare to make a gif in that T-shirt. And I'll go, I'll go with that one because I do think the Shut Up Mason one is, is a pretty good one. Uh, Either Super that... Either yeah. that, or they have to make either that, or they have to make a brand new one where Mason's barfing because it's the barf league. Uh, that could be good. A barf barfing out like uh, his own face. Yes, that 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 could be an interesting one as well. So I don't know. It's going to be funny though because I part of me really wants Mason to do this. Now it's on a short season, so there'll be like you know um, asterisks and stuff by it, like everyone's trying to claim. So. That could be a ton of fun. So uh, I don't know. Listeners, tweet us. Let us know. What do you want to see? Let's get Matty Woods. Uh, let's get the listeners to tell Matt who he needs to have tattooed, on which Mason needs to be tattooed on him. So I think that could be quite funny. There's lots and lots of ways to go about it. That's for sure. Um, all right. Let's head up question number two on the show. Marty Tallman at Marty underscore Tallman asks, assuming it's a 50-game season, now we know it's 60. Or we're pretty sure it's sixty. Which players or what kind of players are you avoiding, Toby? Um, I don't know if there's a necessarily a player that I'm a player type that I'm avoiding or that's particularly hurt that's jumping to mind right off the bat. Um, I think I think like some of the higher variance guys, I, depending on who they are. Um, you know, I'll, I'll get touch on this later, but I just think that the schedule and the matchups is going to be really critical. You know, if they do like the division specific ones, depending on what the divisions look like, I think it'll have a dramatic impact. So, you know, it may be a situation where, for instance, I'm avoiding pitchers in the AL East and, um, uh, you know, or, or something of that nature. 
so I think it'll be like kind of micro guys that I'm that I'm avoiding. Maybe the high variance guys, just because I'm actually of the mind that you know limiting the variance of the players, particularly having a number of high variance guys on your team, is not going to be a good way to go about um, trying to win uh, this year. Um, you know, and, and so I will I will try to minimize variance. So. Some of the higher variance guys, maybe in certain divisions, will be guys that I steer clear of. But I do think that it's it's difficult to know exactly. And, um, you know, pitching is also just going to be such a mess. So it'll be really interesting. Maybe some of those maybe some of those pitchers who who don't go deeper into games might be a, might be a little bit of a fade because I think you're going to see a lot of bullpen usage probably and people getting creative with their pitching which I don't think will bode well for the non kind of workhorse type guys uh, who are starting out games. Yeah, no, it's pretty much the philosophy. Do you want to take the risk team or the safe team? Um, I've been kind of in the camp of, I want those locked in at bats. Um, When it comes to pitching, it makes things a little more interesting. Do you go early on aces or do you kind of gamble more? And, you know, like you're saying, I I kind of agree, especially early on, We'll, we'll find out more, but they're basically getting three weeks to ramp up. And we're going to find out, do most pitchers only go you know, four or five innings to start out? So are they even going to qualify for wins? They're going to start 10 to 12 games on a season. Like there's a lot of question marks on what makes a quality starter. And yes, ratios can be very difficult. But, you know, when we talk closers at some point, do you just take more like long relief or setup type guys with good ratios and hope they run into wins or some saves? Because those are all going to be volatile counting stats. Um, I think I'm I'm avoiding... The super volatile guys, the big platoon guys for sure. I'm not going there because that can make a nightmare if you're not in a daily league. If you're even in FPC where it's biweekly or just a weekly league, having those platoon guys could be just disastrous to your roster because every at-bat counts. Um, it's going to be like a – I know the sprint's the common word. One way to, to think about it, it's going to be like you're in a mono league now where every, just at-bats count. Like you want guys that are that are, that are playing. So um, getting those guys at the top of the orders, the guys that are locked in the spots – those are going to be huge, and that's going to be something to pay attention to. And then uh, how you want to build your staff around that will be quite interesting because I know we've talked many times about like late-round batters we like and this, that, and the other. Most of them have locked-in jobs, but a lot of them have caveats. Do they have a job? Where are they at in the batting order? Now taking those chances might not be as uh, lucrative unless you have a stable core in place, which means maybe you don't take pitching early, you take more secure bats early. There's going to be a lot of stuff for us to discuss in the next month or so to really kind of ramp up and see where stuff's going and, and where guys are getting drafted. It's going to be utter chaos for the next like three to four weeks when things finally get going here. But uh, for now I'm with Toby in the fact, at least for the hitters pitching, I'm still trying to navigate where I want to go. I think a lot of it's going to depend on where pitchers are going. Do they get pushed up? Do they get pushed down? That kind of thing. But hitters, I really want those secure guys. I want those pretty solid floors with the upside and, we can say it now, but, you know, slumps happen. If they have the slump to start the season, we're screwed. So you can only put yourself in the best scenario on a short run. It'll be quite, quite difficult. All right. Uh, baseball pods at baseball pods asks, what's your approach to pitching? And I guess I kind of hit this in a 50 game season in the NFBC and in standard redraft with no overall. So let's just switch it to a 60 game season, Toby. How are you approaching it in an NFBC format, which is obviously is once a week you get to put pitching in. And then in a standard redraft with no overall, I'm guessing still we'll go weekly league, but um, you know, NFBC's got, he's, he's talking overall compared to non-overall basically. 
Yeah, I think in in the NFBC overall, I mean, I I don't want to sound like I don't want to uh, I I'm going to probably go pretty heavy early on pitching is probably going to be the approach that I take in NFBCs. Like with the mains, I'll probably do like one solo main, maybe one shared main as well. And I might go heavy pitching. I might even start off like I think, you know, the usual two aces, but also adding in a third ace there, I think could be really important. Obviously, like uh, I think we've we've mentioned before on the pod or I've, I've heard it mentioned elsewhere, but uh, Phil DeSalt has a really nice um, had a really nice breakdown of kind of uh, of player volatility and actually hitters in the analysis that he did um, looking at different parts of seasons and how consistent players are over those periods of time, starting pitchers actually were more consistent um, than hitters over a short period of time. So that's part of it. I think part of it is also just because I think pitching is going to be crazy. I think there are so many unknowns with pitching heading into this year. Um, how are bullpens going to be used? You know, how deep into starts are people going to go? And so there's going to be those, those guys who are, who are going to go deep into games. You know, your Garrett Coles, your guys who don't have the, don't pay the third time through the order penalty. And I think that volume, both in terms of strikeouts, uh, in terms of, you know, the potential ratios that they could set for you, I think will be really helpful and access to wins too will be critical because that may be one of the hardest categories to pinpoint, there's already so much luck involved in them, but as as innings pitched per game go are shorter or shorten, I think it's going to be even harder to do that and to anticipate, you know, toward in the back half of rotations how how teams are going to are going to handle the situation on a game to game game basis. And so I may actually lean even more heavily on pitching or, or overall and maybe try to identify some guys. Well, that's p- pitching is the only is the only thing he asked about. I think in a short, a shorter season, um, you know, or in a non overall, you know, I don't think there's a ton that necessarily changes. You know, I think you need to factor in how much you want to invest in, you know, some of the harder categories like wins and batting average, and maybe you want to, you know, you you um, consider punting one of those categories. I never really feel great about punting just because I feel like part of the fun of the game is is to really be trying to do as best as you can in the different categories. So I'm not sure anything changes that dramatically. You know, maybe you go a little bit more, you know, long relief heavy in kind of standalone leagues where, you know, you to try to keep those ratios down. But yeah, I, I don't think too much changes there. I don't know. What do you, what do you think on those? Well, when you're talking about the aces, I, I've been in that camp where I either want like go ace heavy or I want to just kind of play the game late. I like the ace heavy approach because more often than not, they have very good ratios and they're going to go deeper into games. Like even if we're talking older aces, like a Clayton Kershaw, we know is going to go five, six, seven innings, like out the gate, probably pretty close. Mm-hmm. Like some of those guys, they get catapulted up rankings compared to, you know, Kershaw might slip in early third. I doubt the second round, but in those savvy main event leagues, you know, if you went pitcher early or you wanted someone kind of late second round, Kershaw's one of the guys you can rely on, and the Dodgers are going to be good. So it's one of those kind of scenarios where it kind of pans out, where that's the kind of thing we have to look at, um, how value changes for certain players. Because uh, when you go down to other pitchers, like the Lazardos of the world, they might only go three innings a game. Like, they they might not stretch them out, and they might, like, be piggybacks. So 
it'll be really interesting to see all that plays out and we'll have to kind of decipher what pitchers can we rely on a little more than others. And, and usually it's the ace. You're correct. So that'll be interesting to see if that's the scenario to go at and how to approach it there. Um, it's either that or you just load up on a lot of guys and just pray your your, your ratios don't get destroyed. But that's going to be very tricky. Um, in in the standalone leagues, I can see the re- the option to just punt um, punt saves or get a lot of the middle relievers because I'm a true believer in the fact that there's with the three pitch three batter minimums, you're going to see a lot of pitchers. Uh, there multiple guys are going to be saves uh, save assets on teams. The tough part is there's 60 games. Say the best team wins what, 40 games, maybe they get 20 to 25 saves per se, give or take, maybe a little more. So how does that get spread out? Like the average closer, the 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 league leading closer might have like 12 saves this year. So if you if you're going for closers, do you just go crazy there, or do you just kind of say you know in a standalone league, I'm going to punt it and get ratios and strikeouts and see if I can fall into some wins and stuff? I can see that being a very valuable way to go. In the in the NFPC overall, like you said, you can't you can't punt them. So going for relievers is a whole other scenario. So I'll just kind of ask you this before we go on to more questions. And if it's a question later, I apologize, and we'll just we'll hit it now. But um, when it comes to closers, and I had this discussion with James Anderson last week, and I've talked about it with other guys, and there's some very interesting ways to go about it. I, I've heard guys go, "We want to be aggressive early and get some big dogs that we know are good to go," or there's we don't waste picks early. We just get a lot of quantity later. And then I've heard just all kinds of scenarios in between all of that. How would you approach closers and say an overall league where you have to have saves? Um, I don't think my approach is going to change all that much. Um, I think one of the things in an, in an overall when you're drafting is you need to decide where you want to take on, like not necessarily risk, but you can't have it all, right? Like if you could have it all, then it would be easy to draft in a overall competition where you need to compete on all of the different areas. And for me, the easiest place to, um, to do that is, is with closers, right? Because, you know, the guys are dependent on being in the closer role. There's a bunch of variants outside of maybe a few handful of guys. Um, I could see an instance where you may, you know, you, you could maybe theoretically push up the value of, of a guy who you think maybe is going to get a little bit, more innings, like a hater or something like that. If you didn't have the potential competition, you know, um, from a Knievel or something of that nature. But for me, I think it's going to be a pretty, pretty similar approach. I want to be targeting a couple guys who already have roles or who already have jobs, but where I don't have to necessarily pay a premium for them. And I'm just going to hope that, you know, or not hope. I mean, the thing is like, I think with all of this, right, there's going to be, there's variance in any season. There's going to be luck in any season. For me, what I'm trying to do is max is minimize the role that luck plays in having a successful team. And then if I'm lucky, then I end up on the good side of the continuum. If I'm unlucky, I, I end up on a bad side of the continuum, but you're still your team is still pretty good. And so I think I am somebody who takes that risk in closers. Like I wait on closers so that I can target, you know, like a better catcher maybe, and also target starting pitching early and also you know, go uh, target depth and hitting. So I don't think anything really changes in this situation. Um, I do think that, you know, um, yeah, I just don't, I just don't know how much things change. I think they can go a lot of different directions. So I'm kind of sticking to my previous approach on closers. Yeah. I remember going for the full season. I was trying to get like one of the Kenley Jansons, Edwin Diaz's of the world, 
not sure I'm going to be going that high anymore. I think I'll stick like I was, I was always trying to get like a Joe Jimenez, Ian Kennedy's that realm. You you like your Leclerc, you got me on Hansel Robles, those kind of guys, kind of your tier three or four closers per se. I think I'll just load up there. I, I'm kind of I'm almost in the mindset. Give me quantity over quality right now. And if you think about it, especially in those early weeks of the season where starters might not be going that much and say you got your Cole and maybe you got your two aces, but then you got a lot of middle guys that might only go four innings. And you say, you know what? I'm going to put four, three or four closers in this week as pitchers instead of all starters and try to rack up saves, strikeouts and ratios. So then when guys get stretched out, so on and so forth, there's going to be a lot of different strategies this year. I think having more closers is big, especially in a shortened fab season. We're going to have about, 12 to 13 weeks of fab, give or take. Can you imagine how much like the closers are going to go for when they become fab eligible? That's just going to be absolutely insanity. And you're going to be bidding for like four close, like four saves. So I'd rather just kind of load up on quantity, go from there. That's where I stand at this point in time. I don't see that changing just because it's kind of been my thoughts the last month or so, but uh, we'll see. It's going to be an interesting way to dissect it for sure. Our good buddy, Michael Simeone at SP streamer asks, you had the opportunity to pull out from your fantasy leagues, would you do so due to the shortened season, Toby? Um, I'm assuming he no. means already drafted leagues. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't feel the need to necessarily do that. I actually feel pretty good about the teams I've drafted and how I've drafted, but I, I can understand where other people would. And so, you know, I, I don't know what the NFBC is going to end up doing. They've made allusions to the fact that they'll probably – I think cancel a lot of the existing drafts. So I'm fine proceeding with the teams that I've drafted. I actually think that the, that the approach that I had early on in the season is one that I'm going to continue. And so I don't see a massive difference. I think the one thing that I, that we won't have with those drafts is being able to see the schedule ahead of time and knowing like, I mean, cause it, it's just nuts. Like, I mean, I think some of the forecasting that you'll be able to do, and obviously there things are subject to change, but Imagine being able to look at the schedule and say, all right, you know, Shane Bieber in his first five starts, which is 40% of his starts this year, gets the Tigers, the Royals, the Tigers again. You know, like you're going to be able to do that to a certain extent, right? And and obviously things are subject to change, but if things stay the same, then you could set yourself up in, in some really nice places. So you won't have the ability to do that, but I feel pretty good about the teams that I've drafted and I think my most owned pitcher right now is Walker Bueller. And I just absolutely like one of my strategies would be just to draft all the Dodgers pitchers. Cause I think they have the best, the weakest hitting division potentially, um, you know, in there. So. Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's uh, definitely, I, I'm good with keeping leagues. Like we drafted what we drafted. We certain guys are going to come out on top just because of random things. That's just how it works. Um, it happens when you draft early to begin with when pitchers get hurt, but there's, there's other circumstances obviously this year that have taken place. But if, if, a, if an entire league votes to redraft, okay, I'm fine with that. If an entire league wants to call it as quits, cool, whatever. I'm not going to argue either way. I'm good with just running things as, as is, um, you know, I don't want to talk too much about it, but in reality, there's going to be players that come down with COVID during the season. And that's just going to be, bad luck as well. Like there's nothing to be able to do about it and they're going to be out for a while and there's nothing to be, be able to do about it. So, so there's going to be a lot of things about this season that just make things way different than normal. 
maybe temper your bankroll for it. Um, do what you wish, but just know there's going to be a lot of circumstances that are going to be much different. And that started with drafting early and then waiting. So that's just the way it's going to go. Um, Cody McDonald at Comac. Dude, he's got a few questions for us tonight. This is the first one. The difference between the worst team and the best team in a fantasy league this year will be much less than usual. This is true. With less opportunity to make in-season additions and corrections, will you be more comfortable assuming more or less risk than usual in your decision-making? I know you're a pretty savvy fab guy. You spent a lot of time on that. Are you going to take more risk in fab? Because we know your draft strategy, we've kind of heard already, it's going to be pretty similar. But are you going to be more aggressive in fab? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think that the thing is like, instead of dealing with 26 fab periods, we now deal with, you know, whatever it is, 10, or I don't even know how many weeks the season is going to be. Like, we're just, we're just dealing with a smaller fab window. And so you're going to have the same budget. So you're going to have to spend more for player acquisitions. But I think the same, a lot of the same things are going to hold true. Like, obviously, you need to start off strong but i think in every fab period the analysis is very similar it's the same right like you're looking at your team you're looking for holes in your roster you know in the upcoming week and then upcoming two weeks um, at whatever positions those are you're looking at categorical needs at least in roto you know and then you're looking for the player that you feel like either represents the best value or that can help you out the most so i don't think that necessarily changes i think what is going to change is just figuring out what those dollar values are Cause like maybe you're used to making those like, like me, I really like that, you know, kind of 20 to $40 type fab bid. You know, those are like kind of, I, I just, I like bids like that, but now you're going to have to calculate. Okay. So if there's 26 season, 26 normally, and then there's 10, you know, we're, we're dealing with whatever percentage of the season that is like 40% of the season. And so, you know, I need to multiply my bids by, you know, whatever, two point, whatever the number is that I'd normally make to do in that instance. Now I think there might be opportunities because I think people are going to go into this being like, I need to, to hit the ground running, you know, and they're going to waste all their fab to begin with. And then for the rest of the season, because what I think more than anything we're going to need is you're going to need flexibility in the way that you construct your roster, flexibility in positions, flexibility in categories, like flexibility is going to be, the, the name of the game for this season, because there's going to be so many unexpected things that happen. The more flexibility you have on your team, the more, the better ability to adapt you have. And I think that's what you're going to need to win. And so I don't think that, that it necessarily changes all that much. It's just being able to kind of adjust it to the circumstances that we're in right now. Like the season is shorter. Yes but the gaps are going to be smaller between different categories. And so like everything is going to be say, be really the same in a lot of respects, just over a short amount of time. So there's more variance. And the thing about variance is you can't necessarily bet on it, right? Like we keep on being like, I'm going to go with the more high variance guys because maybe I'll get it. Well, the chances that your high variance guy is really good is the same as they're, they're going to be super bad over that period of time too. And if you draft two players and one is like the best possible outcome ever and the other guy's the worst possible outcome ever, it doesn't matter that you got one of them right, right? So um, I don't know. Anyways, I'm long-winded, but I just think that flexibility is going to be key and that includes having fab throughout the season. Um, and, you know, especially as people turn to football, right? If people aren't as invested mm-hmm. already this year, 
you know, like maybe like, ah, I'm going to, I mean, normally I have three teams, but I'm just going to have one team this year and they go with one team, you know, their attention is going to start moving right off the bat to football. And so I just think, you know, be patient, make the, make the right bids, go after the right players. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of value that you're going to be able to squeeze out of the waiver wire this year um, just by working it week to week, working it period to period and, and, and having a flexible roster so that you can adapt and identify those pockets, I think is key. Yeah, there's a few things there. I think that people moving on or getting bored is very, very much in play this year. At the same time, I could see so many people already being done with it. The people playing are going to be serious players. So I'm kind of torn on that. But I do think most, like usual, when football comes around, it's that shiny toy, and they go follow it when their team's not doing good. So that's definitely a true thing. Um, and I agree. I think it's going to be super critical this year to have money at the end. I know people like yourself, Vlad, Jenstead, all these guys that, that, that we've talked to, they're really, really keen on making sure you have money at the end. I remember talking to someone about it that last year in TGFBI, it was a, it was a race in that league with Kenneth Lee and Brockness Monster, myself, and Jeff Erickson. And it was just going back and forth. And I somehow got up to first for a couple of days. Brock was there. But then I didn't have fab for like three weeks and I ended up in like third or fourth place. It was just if, if just the little things you can do to add for like one more picture or this or that, it keeps you in the hunt. And, and you need that at the end. If you're out of money early, it's very tricky. You talk to um, Modica and some of those guys that still finished very high last year. They either finished second in some leagues or had massive leagues that leads that if there was like another week of the season when it disappeared because they ran out of money so early and couldn't keep adding on. Uh, you hear those stories all the time that money at the end is so critical. I think this year it's going to be even more critical because a lot of people are going to be crazy aggressive and get guys early and run out of money. Or they're going to have very little to bid on and you're going to have all the money in the world to bid on. Different ways to approach it. I think there's also something to be said. I know like yourself that does a lot of diligent fab work and some other guys, you go to the depths. Like you got your like top five guys, but then you have like seven more guys that you put like a dollar on just to have bids out there, stuff like that. I think you're going to get away with a lot of cheap, pretty good guys still this year because everyone's going to be so focused on, oh, look at this guy. You know, we're going to spend 300 bucks on him because we only have so many weeks left. And then you're going to get someone that slides into the radar for like $25. And there's going to be a lot of that this year, I think. So don't forget to put extra bids in. That's one thing I'm going to say is, is make sure you do your work on that aspect of it. But in, in a similar vein to just the fab, Toby, um, I- Hey, Bubba, just yeah. something quick on your point, because I think that that's worth highlighting, like the importance of having fab remaining. So if there's 10 fab periods this year, and again, I don't know if it's exactly 10, but if there's 10 fab periods this year and and you run out of fab for the last two, that means 20% of the season, 20% of the fab periods, you have no you have no, you have no, no chance to pick up a guy. 20% of the season. That's the equivalent of having... 5.2 weeks in a regular season of no fab. So going the full, <laughs> like a full month and one week of the season without being able to manipulate your roster, when it's likely that more guys are going to be injured, when there's going to be more churn and potentially more opportunity, and they're not going to have the, I don't think, I haven't seen, but I don't think they're going to have the, the huge expanded rosters necessarily, um, you know, this year. I mean, the last offer I saw, I think it was like started out with, um, 30 man rosters and then moved to 26 man rosters or something like that. Um, you know, and so, so, it, you know, a lot of it depends on those types of factors, but like, you can't go, 
a month plus of a season without any, without having any fab. So be really, really careful. Like that, that's, that means the same as the beginning of the season. Right. Um, and obviously if you catch a guy who's good for the full season, you know, at the beginning of the season, then that's amazing. That's great. But again, like, you know, generally these are undrafted players. So a lot of times it ends up being either luck or, 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 um, a lot or some luck that results in that happening. Yeah. Then my other question kind of in the same vein is it's not really as much fabric. Okay. You're it's, it's a part of the fab process, but it's not guys you're targeting. How quickly are you to give up on guys compared to normal? Like, you know, usually you can put them on the bench and see if they'll bounce back. But like you just mentioned how two weeks can be 20% can be 5.2 weeks. If you wait two weeks now, that's another 5.2 weeks where you could have had somebody else filling in stats for you. That might've been a better replacement value. So waiting the the duration to wait might not be as good anymore. How quick are you to give up on someone? I think it's, it's all dependent on the situation, right? Like if, if a guy is struggling, but the underlying metrics look good, they look in line with what he's done previously, you know, some of it could be schedule, right? Like I could see a situation, you know, quite easily where let's say I'm, you know, I'm headed into the end of the season and there's three weeks left and I look at, you know, a guy on the diamondback schedule and they face the Dodgers twice. And then they're going and they're playing Houston and Oakland in the other two games. Obviously, like I'm just making this up out of my, out of my mind, but those are things where if it's not a player, who's who's a relatively elite player, then I might be willing to move on right from the guy. So I think a lot of it depends, but again, it's the importance of don't change the process necessarily. Just understand that, your your team's going to be subject to more variants. There's nothing you can do to change that. So maintain the process, focus on the process that's worked for you in the past and just apply it in a slightly different context. If a guy, but if a guy, you know, just looks like he's not, you know, he, you know, he, there's, there's, his, his skills are way down. You know, he's swinging and missing a ton when he doesn't normally, he just doesn't look good. I might be more, I'm, I'd be much more willing to move on from a guy like that necessarily, you know, depending on who the pitchers that he was facing and things like that are. So just run that process, like use your common sense, you know, don't make these, these huge, massive changes to the way that you, to the processes that you use, just understand maybe a little bit differently how you apply them or how you apply the findings to them, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And that's kind of where I was going with that. Cause you know, like I know guys like yourself and others, Use like rolling 14 day graphs or 28 one or 28. Well, we don't have that much time this season. Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to kind of find ways to, and especially with hitters might be one thing. Pitchers will be tough if they're getting one start a week. Like when do we realize, okay, the, when we look at velocity changes, well, once we figure out when it's legit, that's almost going to be too late type stuff. So that's going to be the fun act of how to navigate that. That's mm-hmm. going to be the interesting thing because I think whoever can, get lucky or figure it out the best or navigate, however you want to phrase it. I think those guys are going to be so far ahead of the game. And I know it sounds real easy to say, but that's going to be a game changer. If you can figure out how quickly to, to get rid of the dead weight before others do, that's going to be tremendous. So uh, we're going to have to figure out some, some masterful act there to, to make that work. I just don't know how just yet. Um, yeah, well, one yeah. thing that comes to mind too, is I may focus a little bit more like even though it's an average league, I may focus a little bit more on OBP guys. I hadn't thought of this until just the second as you were 
kind of discussing that because, because, you know, like there's a lot of things, like I was on a podcast earlier this week and we were doing this, it was a really, this fun game where it was kind of like, what, what was the highest 50 game, uh, uh, period for this player last season? And what was the worst? And one thing I would, that was really interesting to me is Mookie Betts. Like we all thought he had a terrible season. He still had 132 runs scored. Right. And there was very, there was, and this is like a one size sample. So don't take too much of it, but there was, there wasn't a ton of difference between his peak and his Valley over those 50 games. And that's one of the things is like one of the skills that I think, you know, getting on base is a skill scoring runs, you know, and getting on base is a skill. And so even though averages may fluctuate guys who have higher walk rates are going to be on base more and they're going to hurt you less than those kind of high variance, low, um, you know, uh, swing and miss all the time type of guys. And so I may actually incorporate OBP a little bit more into my game, just thinking about how that helps at least stabilize a little bit of the variance in some of the categories um, and allows a guy to continue to be productive in some way even if they're struggling overall at the plate. I think that's an interesting way to go about it. Even if we do like the 162 game, just rolling graph of their OBP and see who kind of stayed steady more than anything, not even just peaks and valleys, just stayed as steady as possible within like a range of X amount of percent, I think is a, a very interesting way to go about it. Cause it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about just staying on base and not killing you a lot. Cause even if they go maybe O for three at the dish, but walk once or twice, they can steal a bag and score some runs. So it's not, it's not a dead weighted game. Um, that's a very, very interesting way to go about it. I think, um, again, you don't want to punch stats, but in that theory, it's almost like you could punch batting average and draft like an OBP draft, basically is what you're saying. And I think that's a, a definitely a way to go about it and, and see how that pans out. So it'd be interesting to see where that goes for sure. Yeah. And I, and I think the thing is like, I think the key is for like batting average, you know, that's where contact skills come into play, right? And so yeah. the higher the contact yeah. skills, the less variance you should have, you know, um, in batting average over like a rolling period of time. So that's one way to kind of try at least as best as you can to neutralize that. Obviously, it doesn't work. Guys like Jose Ramirez have really bad batting averages over that period of time. But you do what you can, you know? Yeah. Um, so for sure. Yeah, because like Mookie... Mookie is one of the the examples, and it's most really solid examples are going to be the early round draft picks to begin with. So then it's you have to decipher like Josh Bell is an easy one. He had such a great first half. The second half was kind of like eh, I don't know. So what's Josh Bell do we get? Stuff like that is going to make a lot of talking points. But I think there's going to be ways to dig in. I think the OBP is a good way to start uh, looking at stuff like that. Uh, another question from Comac Do Cody. This is funny because this is also before the tentative agreements in place now, but give me one message you would like to give all 30 MLB owners five words or less. I'll start with you, Toby. Uh, don't be so damn greedy. How's that? We're, in, we're very close to the same ballpark there. I, I'll keep mine as PG as possible. <laughs> you greedy owners really suck. There you go. That was brilliant. I, I had to keep it as clean as possible. <laughs> so you, you did a great job. I, I'm working on my my parenting skills. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't worry; they don't they won't they won't pick that up for a couple of years. You got your, that's your what everyone tells me. A year, I, get, I, get, I guess. Yeah, I get I get the don't worry, and then when they get older, oh, don't worry; they've heard that before. I'm like, it still doesn't yeah. make it right. <laughs> but uh, all right, my buddy uh, Lucas Beery at Beery Blocks 33 
he asked, what are you doing with, well, we kind of discussed this briefly. I didn't realize it was a question, but here you go, Lucas. What are you doing with closers in a potentially 50-game season, so a 60-game season? We kind of hit it on it. Do you want to give your quick cliff notes recap on it? Um, I mean, like the thing for me is, yeah, I, I would wait. I, I, I'm going to take the same approach. You know, I'm going to target guys and kind of, uh, I can never do the round thing. So like around, you know, starting picks, maybe like 120 through 180, probably getting two closers kind of in that slot right there. I can see some reasons like for doing like, if they do the division thing, I think that Kenley could be a really nice pick just because, I really think that that the NL West will be the best pitching division as long as you skip Coors starts, um, you know, and, and, and what was it? I think Justin put something up. I mean, each starting pitcher is probably going to average like in that division one start at Coors. So maybe you're getting 11 instead of 12 starts, but like, I really think like with the giants not being good at all with the Padres, not necessarily being good at all. And both of those ballparks being, you know, pretty uh, pitcher friendly the D-backs, I mean, solid, I think, all-around team, but nothing crazy. And then the Rockies on the road are bad. Like, you have some really bad hitting teams in that in that division. And so I could see pushing up Kenley a little bit and grabbing him just thinking, I need wins, I need saves. The Dodgers, I think, are kind of the best bet to be good over the long period of time. So I could see doing something like that or running my, the closers through kind of analysis of of wins and, and access to that. But generally speaking, I'm going to employ a pretty similar approach. Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's, I might not go as aggressive on the big guys. Like Kinley makes a good sense, but I know in the past we talked Kinley and Edwin and those kind of guys could be nice starters, but I'll just build up with quantity uh, a little later on in tier three, tier four stuff along those lines. Uh, Billy B from Canada at Bill Bradley 44. Which of these late outfielders do you believe will get the most playing time and have the most value? Ryan Braun, Andrew McCutcheon, Kevin Pillar. And I'm going to put a caveat out there. There's mixed reports saying we won't have the universal DH this year, but then a lot of people still assume once they finish negotiating, they will have the universal DH. I I think they do. They do have the universal DH, but only for 2020. This year. So okay. that was part of the earlier negotiation is my understanding. Okay. That's what I thought too. There's been some weird beat writer stuff going on, but I'm with you on that. I think for this year, they'll have it 2021, not as much anymore. Mm-hmm. So Braun will still get that advantage. So that's why I want to put that caveat out there. So Braun McCutcheon and Pilar, who do you think gets the most playing time and has the most value? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of this depends on what Andrew McCutcheon looks like um, in spring training, because for me, like, heading into this year, he was a no draft. He looked so bad in spring training, just like hitting like his movement with his left, his left leg, I think, you know, and then you just think about it. I mean, it's, it's been probably a year now on the, on the day, like that he got injured. And that's, I mean, like for ACL tear, that's a pretty quick recovery to have full movement back. So a lot depends on how he looks in spring training. So with that in mind, I, I, I actually would, I had meant to let you go first because I knew you were going to pick, but um, but I'm, I'm going to go with Ryan Braun in this particular instance. But I'll I'll uh, press pause oh. on that and I'll let you I'll let you uh, talk uh, wax poetic about Ryan Braun and his virtues. Well, here's what I was going to say, and in the end, the answer is Ryan Braun, correct? But uh, <laughs> I'm I'm kind of in your your shoes that McCutcheon got back really quick for this and i know technology has improved so the old standard it was like you know 12 to 16 months might have changed a little more i get that 
and not starting the season to start the year is always great. And we've seen all the videos, which are awesome. In reality, if we see in this three-week spring training that Kutch is healthy and he's going to be leading off for the Phillies in that offense, and we talked about the kind of volatile pitching in that Eastern division, there's a lot to like with Kutch, a lot. And he's got a great value right now, which will rise, obviously. A lot to like there. But Mr. Braun, Mr. Braun, the ability to hit the ball as hard as he still does, the ability just to have power, hit for average, doesn't crush you there. He pretty much contributes everywhere. In full seasons, he was still getting double-digit steals. Maybe he gets you four still, maybe five. Who knows? I doubt he runs a ton in a shortened season, but you never know. But he still has that ability to, to, to hit with power. He won't be playing the field and, and on those legs as much, which might keep him healthier. Um, with that DH, Braun is a tremendous play. So right now, assuming Kutch is still kind of iffy, I go Braun for sure. But keep an eye on Kutch because both of them are coming at great draft prices. Don't get me wrong. Kutch, if healthy, will play every day. He'll be leading off for the Phillies in a phenomenal offense, which can't be ignored. But Braun, he's, he's just too good, and he gets underappreciated. His draft price is disgusting. And it was that bad even before the Avisil stuff. So people can't just blame it on that. It was bad before that. It was disrespectful. But, um, yeah, Braun, Braun's, Braun's phenomenal. Braun should be targeted on many teams. And when it comes to the DH, Ryan Braun, big, big benefactor. So, yes, as you were. Yeah, I'm, and I think you make some uh, really good points in there. And this may be an example of like where the short season does matter to me. Because I think in a regular season, I think for me, Abisail Garcia is pretty is, is ahead of Braun um, in a regular season, especially without the new DH. But with the new rules in place in the shortened season, I look at those profiles and Garcia's got a high swing and miss profile, doesn't get on base a lot. He's obviously got the pop and a little bit of speed. Um, the potential for batting average as well, but Braun's got a more solid foundation generally. Um, and so for that reason, I might be more uh, more inclined to lean towards Braun in a shorter season, just because I feel a little bit more confident that Braun will be consistent in his performance compared to um, Avisail Garcia, who could really be a, a huge, a huge detriment. I mean, he gets hot, he gets hot, but when he gets cold, he gets cold. So that could be an example of just applying the shortened season to a player comp where, you know, it might, the short season may change who I prefer in that particular instance. Yeah. And it goes back to, you want those guaranteed at bats or pretty guaranteed at bats where bronze getting drafted to get pretty locked in at bats is pretty darn good. So that's like, if you do go pitching early, bronze should be a heavy target of a pitching early guy because that's a, an outfielder or a worst utility guy that's going to play, almost every single day. So that's a, that's a big, big plus there. Yeah. And you want to know something? I just thought of a new fun use of you rolling average graphs. Yes. Is just go into rolling average graphs and change the game number to 60. And then you can very easily play around with what the highs and lows over 60 games were for them in those various, in the various categories. Like that is that is one way to do it. Yes. Yeah. So that could, uh, I was just thinking about that with Braun because I was interested to see if the theory was actually, you know, accurate. Like, you know, last year, his lowest 60 game average was 228. His highest was 318. And I was going to compare that to Avisail. But anyways, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop talking. No, I think it's, I think it's a great exercise. We might have to, maybe next week, we'll look at some 60 game stuff like that. Cause I think it is one way to go about it. Cause I've seen a lot of people, mm put out information on guys best 60 worst 60 this that and the other and where i think they have legs and maybe it'll be a better discussion next week when we can go deep into it it has legs in one regard the same regard as 
when do which sixty do we get? We don't know, and that's where mm-hmm. our, that's where I have a tough spot. And you look at you know some sixties early in the year when it's cold, and there's other scenarios. So I think it'll be a fun discussion in the in the coming weeks that we can definitely look into because it's going to be used a lot because it makes sense. It's just how do we decipher it properly? That'll be yeah. the, the fun part. Uh, Dave Mendelson at DMindy02 uh, from Mr. Triple Play Fantasy, the podcast you were talking about. Um, assuming you're drafting before announcements are made about who's on the major league rosters, would you consider using that last pick in your redraft leagues on guys like Mackenzie Gore or Nate Pearson, guys that may or may not be on the big league club and and you have to gamble on? Would you take that risk for guys that may not make the roster? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, I don't think they're going to go towards the end of drafts. I mean, I think they're going to go higher up probably. Um, you know, cause I think, you know, if you're the blue Jays or the Padres, like a 60 game season seems ideal to be able to compete where the true talent level doesn't actually show up, but not using those guys as particular examples. Yeah. I think those are really good. Like that's where I want to go for the variance plays. The big variance plays is towards the end of drafts, right? Like if I can go after a guy who maybe he's got a 20% chance of getting, uh, you know, the starting job, but if he gets the starting job, then he's, you know, then I think he's going to be elite. Well, yeah, I'll take a shot there. And if not, then I'm just going to churn. It's a roster spot that I can just churn. So that for me is the approach is try to be stable early on and then go after those higher variance guys towards the end or go after closers by committee, right? Because, you know, closers by committee or yeah, fifth starter battles or whatever it is. I mean, obviously like fifth starter is, is going to be a weird thing this year, but, you know, just kind of identify those places where a guy could well outperform where he's going in drafts and take chances on those guys. Cause if they, if they don't work out, there's gonna be a lot of movement within rosters and a lot of movement within lineups. And on a weekly basis, you'll have an opportunity to just turn those spots moving forward and try to identify some value moving forward. So I think that's a great example. I, I, well, the example I think is, is in maybe very shallow leagues, like you'll be able to go after those guys towards the end of drafts, but otherwise I think, yeah, that's the absolute play is going after high, high upside guys later on in drafts is, is a great, a great approach. I think. Yeah. If it's youngsters, if it's late starters, there might be six man rotations this year for all we know. Um, there's going to be a lot of different ways to attack it. I think bullpen by committee is tremendous because, like I said earlier, when guys become available that are going to be safe candidates, they're going to go for a million dollars, it feels like. If you got those guys in your rosters, like there's going to be very interesting ways to roster construct this year and still be very successful because I think, especially when it comes to pitching, with so few wins and so few saves, there's ways to build up strikeouts, good ratios, and the potential for saves and or wins without going the traditional route with everybody. Obviously you want a few guys, but I mean, after that, there's ways to do this. That could be quite interesting. So um, I'm with you. Take your, take your chances and stuff like that. And it's something we've talked about many times on this show and other shows. The whole point of like your last picks is they're not your starters. If they don't work out, you turn and burn. You should always be having like, I think Vlad and you guys have said like, you almost want three, four, not always week at week after week, but you want three or four guys that you can turn and burn at most times. Like, so it, it, there's there's always a process, and on a shortened season, you got to be even more willing to to turn and burn and get it going. So I'm with you there 100. Um, percent Richard Sands after Richard Sands, he's he's always got some good dynasty questions. This one's fun because I can actually help with this one as well as you, uh, compared yeah. to just letting Toby run wild with the dynasty questions. Uh, what's your strategy in dynasty prospect leagues? Do you just take best player available? 
regardless of how long until they possibly make it to the majors, 2024, 2025? Or do you take some lower-ranked players who might be up sooner? This is a 5 by 5 Roto League where MLB stats count now. How do you – I'm assuming – I don't know if this was a redraft or a first-time dynasty. How would you approach that, though, like when you're drafting prospects in general for a draft? Yeah, I mean, I think the key for me for for anything dynasty-related is just to understand your competition window and what your strategy is going into it. I'm assuming that he's talking about, like – I'm assuming I was assuming that it was like the first year of a draft. But yeah, I'm either, assuming it's a startup, basically. Yeah, either way, I think it's just understanding what your window for competition is and and targeting prospects accordingly. I mean, not in like a super rigid way, but just to give an example, like I'm in a dynasty league right now, and I'm in win win now mode, and I was in win now mode from the get go. You know, that's kind of what I was focusing on, and so. I was kind of targeting two different types of prospects. Number one was ones that were maybe not as good pedigree, but were close to the majors. And so they might be pieces that I could, that, that I could either use, or if they do well, kind of shop um, for major league talent that's already available. And then the other ones were younger guys. Like I've got like a crap ton of guys who are like 17 to 19 you know, um, who are kind of high variance guys, but high, high ceiling guys, you know, who, you know, I can, who, if they're good, I can trade them for major league talent right now. Or by the time my window is kind of coming to a close, they should be entering the majors and have the ability to keep my window continuing. So I think it's all, it's all contextual. It's all about, you know, who you're, what, when you're drafting for and when you think your window of contention is. And I think just applying those, applying that to to the, to the league, to the way you draft prospects. No, I'm 100% with you. I, especially on a first-year draft, a startup draft, I'm in the play now mode. Um, I For the most part, I don't draft a ton of prospects even early. I don't go aggressive at the studs like a lot of other guys you'll watch do it. Uh, maybe that's to my detriment, but I, I go to win now because, A, one thing you'll hear is a lot of dynasty leagues don't last that long. So you might want to win right away unless you have a good group of friends that can keep it going. Um, I look to target guys that are like 23 to 27. Like they're young, but they still have a lot of good years ahead of them. So they're playing now, but they're still competitive. Um, and, then I'll, and then I'll go for prospects that are at least close. Like I'm not I'm not getting a ton of single-A guys unless I get them late. Like if if I really like them, you know, like – a for the Giants per se, like a Helio Ramos or something like that, that I know sure he's in single A, but he'll be up in a couple years. He'll be up quick. Um, he's not going to be in the long-term flow. For when it comes to pitching, I really try to avoid most pitching prospects unless they're really close mm-hmm. because they're just one pitch away from being gone for a year or two, and then who knows how they look when they get back. Um, I made the comment with, uh, again, when we did the baseball draft recap with James Anderson, uh, we were talking about the Baby Blue Jays. Everyone knows how much I love the Baby Blue Jays, but – they added another bat in Martin this year, who's going to be up real soon. Like, I'd be cool drafting him. And the Blue Jays are building their team the way I'd like to build a dynasty. Tons of young bats they have control of for a while, and then they'll use their money to purchase pitching. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's the way I would like to do it. Go draft your established or trade for established pitching. Use your prospects for bats more often than not is how I would go about it. But everyone has different ways to do it. That's the fun part. Yeah, and I I couldn't reemphasize your point about drafting pitching prospects more. Like my, we have twenty minor league spots in my dynasty league. Eighteen of them are hitters. 
two of them are pitchers. One of those pitchers is Austin Voth. And another one, the other one I think is like Taylor Hearn. And he was on the DL all last year. So I'll probably end up dropping him, um, you know, once we have to reduce uh, the size of our roster. So, yeah, I, I'm totally with you there. Yeah, you can always find pitching later, trade for it. Even if it's a prospect later, like I traded, I think I, I had to rebuild a team and I ended up getting like Matt Manning this year, but he's going to be up like in a year. I didn't have to draft him and wait four years and pray he doesn't get hurt. He still might get hurt, but he was a part of like a, I got like a four players for a two player deal. He's kind of almost like a throw in that kind of stuff can work out. So that's the angle I go with there. Um, all right. Billy B from Canada is back with another question at Bill Bradley 44. What are your feelings about Pete Alonzo from a redraft and a dynasty perspective? Big meat, Pete, the polar bear and bat flip. I know he is not in your draft wheelhouse by ADP and preference in this area with no speed <laughs> really curious at least he listens to the show that's good oh yeah really? i mean he's a he's he asks it questions almost every week i'm a i'm a big fan yeah. of bill he says he's really curious if the power is legit and that the average has hope for progression so i've written and talked about him a lot this year i know you've got thoughts on him so what's your thoughts on him for a redraft and a dynasty and do you think the power and, and average are reliable well, he already knows. I mean, he's like my low, like my least vat, like from a value perspective, probably the guy that's lowest on on my board at this moment in time. But that's not necessarily a reflection of what I think of him as a player. I think he's really good as a player. And I think his profile bodes really well because, you know, all of the metrics support him hitting the ball really hard and yeah, crushing the ball. There's room for, you know, like, um, I don't know if there's room for growth, but his K rate is an astronomical, you know, 26.4% K rate last year. He walks at a decent clip over 10%. And then you look at his contact rate, 73%. You know, that's slightly below league average, but again, for a power hitter, for a guy who's, you know, among the league leaders in barrels, um, you know, that's good. Play dis- discipline is fine. So it's not like there's any glowing uh, problems with his, with his swing or with, with his approach at the plate, really. I mean, he could definitely improve, you know, his, his, uh, his patience and that would probably make him a lot better player, but it's his first year in the league. So I don't see a reason why he can't get better. And so I think he's, I think he's a great player moving forward. I just don't love the price, which Bill already knows given his question. Yeah. A, I don't like the price either. B the power is legit as legit can be. Like you said, the hard hits, the barrels, like the dude mashes baseballs. But um, the average, I, I'm still not sold on. Um, if you look at his, I used, uh, thanks to talking with Toby so much, I, I started using rolling graphs a little bit. I'm not nearly Woo-hoo! as talented, not nearly as talented as Toby is, but it helped me look into his like swinging strike rate and strikeout rates and all those stuff towards the end of the year when people started using more off-speed pitches against him. And if you look at his like zone rates, he started chasing the ball a lot more, which lowered his average. He's still, when he made good contact, the ball went a long, long ways. Don't get me wrong but there was a lot more hole in his swing as well as people started to figure him out. So it's one of those things. Can he adapt? Can he fix that? If he can, then sky's the limit and watch out. Uh, he's fun to watch. He just won't be on my fantasy teams. I'm just not going to do it. Um, dynasty wise, I guess I'm still not going to use an early dynasty pick on him because someone else will take him higher than I want. So I, I really, I don't see any time in the future, in the near future, I'll own Pete Alonso in any, anywhere basically, because it just won't, he's not the type of player I like, for one and B people like him a lot more than I do. So they're going to get to him before I even think about drafting him. So that's kind of my angle there. Um, Cody McDonald's back. Comac do. 
I think it would be appropriate to ask what your favorite beer and hard liquors are given the current news cycle. <laughs> yeah, the current news cycle is something else. Um, I, I know you're not the biggest drinker, Mr. Toby. Do you have any favorites? Oh, man. This is a tough one because I feel like there's a beer that I really like that I can't remember. All, all mm-hmm. my brain capacity is, is is saved for fantasy baseball in case people haven't noticed. Um, dedication folks. Hard, you dedication. know i don't i don't really do i don't really do hard alcohol much um i'm, I'm like the guy at barf who, who isn't taking the shot um <laughs> but uh Me I would, both. I, That's cool. i'm gonna go with uh i'm gonna go with bailey's i love bailey's just because like around like christmas time and in the winter like especially when i'm hanging out with um family we kind of have a tradition of having bailey's like everywhere and so when we're drinking mm-hmm. coffee we're having it with bailey's when we're you know um having waffles, we're having it with Bailey's, like whatever. So I would go with Bailey's just because it tastes good. And I like things that taste good. Um, on a beer perspective, um, I'm just trying to think if there's a particular brown that I like. I mean, uh, a good brown ale is probably my favorite. Um, and I'm trying to think what they they would be. And then I also like a, a hazy, like a hazy IPA. Yes. Uh, there's a Sierra Nevada me. hazy IPA that I really like a lot as well. Um, so that's the one that's sticking out to me. Um, what is it? Is it Sam Smith Brown? Is that a Brown? Sam, Sam, Sam Adams. No, not Sam Adams. There's like a, oh. a is it Smithix Brown? Is it Smithix? Oh, Smithix. Smithix. No, Smithix is a, an Irish red. Irish beer. Anyways, yeah. you go. I'm going to look it up. It's like an English <laughs> brown ale. And it's not um, Newcastle, but... yeah. If it comes to hard alcohol, I used to be a big whiskey fan. The wife's not a fan of me being a whiskey fan, so I don't drink a lot of whiskey anymore. But um, that was my thing in college. Now I enjoy a good Greyhound if you have the proper grapefruit. It can't be the nasty, really bitter, tart grapefruit. It's got to be tasty, real, fresh grapefruit. Um, and and that's, a, that's a very refreshing beverage during the uh, the warm times. Otherwise, if I'm drinking beer, I like um, – hazies are growing on me tremendously. I've talked to Michael Ajetto. A picture list about it a lot on Twitter because he posts, he drinks a lot of different hazies. And uh, I'm a big fan of those now. There's a couple down here at Barrel House Brewing and some others that I like a lot. So I'm starting to like those quite a bit. But my favorite still to this day, and I know, I know a lot of people aren't IPA fans, but it's um, everyone goes to Russian River for Pliny the Elder. And my favorite one is the Blind Pig at Russian River. I think it's amazing. I've had friends tell me, why didn't you tell me about this before? It's one of the smoother IPAs you'll find. So I'm a big fan of uh, Blind Pig. It's hard to find. Uh, if Matty Wood listens to the show, he knows all about it. He's got little hideouts down in San Luis Obispo that stock it <laughs> once in a while. He gets the 411 on it and yeah. goes and picks them up. But uh, And then I get a text message that he, he bought them out. So that's how that goes. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a hidden gem. It's very, very good. And if you can't find them in places like he does, you have to go to the source to get them. And it's unlimited quantity at a time. So good stuff. Did you figure out what your brown I, ale I is? I did figure out. It's Samuel Smith's Nut Brown Ale. Hmm. I'll have to check so, that out. It's, it's, a, it's, fairly, uh, it's fairly common. It's normally sold in like a large bottle, like in grocery stores. So like in a, in a 22 or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's solid. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty, I, enjoy, I actually really enjoy drinking beer, but um like I, I enjoy the taste of beer generally, but I don't find myself doing it very frequently. So I don't do it nearly as often as I used to. I'll put it that way. But uh, yeah, <laughs> same. That, uh, hard. Same. Yeah, I, 
Yes, they used to be much more frequent, let's put it that way. Um, and our last question of the night, a, a good follow on Twitter and uh, around the community, Dave Swan, and I, I tell him I screw this up every time, at Davithius, as I believe how it's pronounced. He says, and this is a fun one because not enough people, especially in the short season, I've not seen this question yet on anything I've done yet. He asked, how are you approaching two catcher leagues? Any interest in just grabbing two from the same team with very few days off could possibly mean more splitting time. I know we've kind of talked about that with your boy, Rio Muto, mm -hmm. but in general, how are you approaching two catcher leagues and the idea of maybe just, you know, like the Braves, grab both Braves catchers and you might get one catcher type thing. Yeah, I mean, just draft JT Real Muto, guys, and you're set. You're in good shape. I mean, he's going to benefit greatly from all of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I do think that I think it's just an individual player choice. Like, I can actually actually see like Wilson Contreras potentially being a little bit more valuable with the Cubs with the NLDH because I think he is a good enough of a hitter that in the right scenario they could have him DH. You know, on days that he's not necessarily playing catcher. Um, because that bat, you know, the bat, like, you know, it's, if it's either him or, uh, Steven Souza, you know, like they're fairly similar players. I'd say Contreras is a better hitter. So I, I think that is a, that's a major factor in it, but I can definitely see with the schedule, I think like 60 games in 66 days or something like that is what I saw in one tweet, like with that type of a schedule, depending on the number of double headers they have. I can definitely see, you know, the value being pushed down a little bit in terms of plate appearances for, uh, for some of the non-elite catchers. So I think it just, it really depends on a player-to-player -player basis. I'd really have to look through and see, do I think they're going to get any additional at-bats uh, uh, playing DH in any particular scenario? You know, check that out. But yeah, I could see where it would be kind of pushed, pushed closer, where there could be a little less difference. Uh, so, so maybe just more of a focus on plate appearances, like a guy like Yadier Molina is a great example, right? Where he's clearly the established guy. He's a good hitter. He's going to get a ton of plate appearances in a season. Um, you know, he's going to be a free agent next year. So they, so, you know, I just think, I think prioritize plate appearances and recognize that there could be even a bigger gap between the guys who get plate appearances and the guys who don't now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's why I think when we did the ADP reviews, there was a lot of, um, catchers kind of moving up some bigger jumps than others because I think people are being more aggressive on them to um, make sure you got those guaranteed at bats so you weren't stuck with the kind of guys out on a limb type situations because um, you got even a Jorge Alfaro you know is going to catch five to six games a week or stuff like that so you know that's good but you know we talked to Monty Grandal before before they got Edwin Encarnacion he would have got an even bigger boost because he would have played first base mm -hmm. DH and catch um, a guy that I, I've never owned and I didn't plan on owning him this year, but just in this brief discussion makes me at least look into him some more with some other options. Buster Posey becomes a little more interesting because he's a good batting average and he's going to play first base mm. also besides catch. So he might get an extra game a week, not catching type scenario. Um, Can't be healthier be than he is now probably too. True. Like he probably hasn't been as healthy in a long time. So um, little things like that, that we're going to dig into in the coming weeks now that we actually have something to go on because as Toby and I have, have, have kind of hinted at on the show, and trust me, we've talked about it much more off the show, it has not been easy to continue to try to talk about content when there was not a hope of a season for a while. <laughs> so uh, now that at least we have framework in play, we can start working towards something. Um, Toby, I think we pretty much hit on most 
strategy stuff. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention on a 60-game season? Um, my major points were I think that schedule and the matchups as a result of that are going to be really critical. And so depending on what the divisions look like, you know, I think that's going to be a big decision just based on everything that's happening with COVID. And, um, you know, if it is like the same divisions, but they're just staying within the AL East or the NL East, um, you know, we already did a podcast on that one, but I think that's going to be really important for pitcher value. Uh, I've joked around about it, but like I could see myself doing like an all Dodgers strategy where I drafted like Euler and Kershaw and Price and Wood you know, and, and Urias and just been like, well, I'm just going to go with the Dodgers because I think they give me a good chance to win games. And I think they have probably the best, the the weakest hitting maybe against them or, you know, targeting like Minnesota pitchers or White Sox pitchers, even, yeah, they got to go against Minnesota once, but outside of that, like there's not any lineups that really scare you because even the Indians are, are pretty top heavy, you know, so really looking at schedule and related matchups as a result of that, I'm sure that some of the some of the, the projections will be really interesting how they integrate that. I, I assume like Derek Cardi with the bat will be really emphasizing that or, or, or factoring that into his, his, um, uh, his projections. So I'll be really interested to see what happens there. If they do renewed ones, I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. I think flexibility is one thing that we really didn't talk that much about, but um, flexibility and balance. So multi-position eligibility guys are going to be, I think, very valuable. Um, really awesome to have on your team as because there's so much uncertainty. It gives you more flexibility. And similarly, not putting all your eggs in one basket around like stolen bases or any any category, like really having balance across the board because, you know, um, in a short season, it's um, I think even even more important to to have that type of balance um, on your roster. Pitching is going to be crazy. So, you know, do you roll the dice and you know, hope that you strike it rich on variance. Do you load up up top with some of those aces that I mentioned before you try something in the middle? I think those are going to be some really major questions we're faced with. Um, you know, and then the variance is increased. Yes, that's going to happen, but just trying to minimize it, right? Like minimize it, try to put together best team where you feel like you're not relying on luck to be good because then like, are you really playing fantasy baseball? Or are you really just trying to get lucky? Are you really gambling? And obviously that's more, there's more of that in a shortened season, but I still think there's things that you can do to try to minimize that. And to that point, in looking at the 60-game rolling averages between Ryan Braun and Avisail Garcia, Ryan Braun had a higher batting average peak and a higher batting average floor. Avisail had a lower one in there. So there, there you go. There's proof. Single there sample size proof. More Ryan Braun love on the show. We can never have yeah, enough. Can't have never much. enough. Um, but I agree with everything you're saying. I think it's going to be the risk reward factor, how you can adjust quickly. Um, there's a lot of ways to, to build this team. Like there's a lot of ways to do it. And it's really hard to say any right way, any one way is the right way because of everything that's going to take place. It's almost like find what works for you. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the camp where you are. I might not go as heavy on, on aces early, but I kind of like having at least one or two product. This might be the closest I've ever been to getting pocket aces in a long time. So it. You know, we're, we're, we're leaning that direction. I don't think you've got me on real Muto yet though. So I, I think one thing at a time, but, yeah. um, but it, it gives me that angle and then just kind of adjusting through there. But then again, like we talked about this time in, in weeks past, real Muto's value goes even higher on a year like this. So 
you might have to jump into the third round to get Riamuto or late second round if you're uh, back there and maybe get your second ace early third round. This could get interesting this year. Um, but that'll be stuff we'll definitely talk about in the coming weeks. But uh, it's going to be fun. We have baseball on the horizon. Hopefully they get everything put in place and stay as safe as possible. Figure all that good stuff out. But uh, Toby and I will be back with you next week with episode 42, talking more short season. Keep the questions coming because I think there's going to be a lot of them now with uh, 60 games on tap. But you can find Toby on Twitter at BatFootCrazy. I'm at BDNTrick. You guys have a great week. Stay safe. We'll catch you guys later. Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.